Now, as we come to Revelation 14 tonight, it's the third in a series of three chapters which describe and deal with prominent persons uh, evident on the earth and in the heavens during the Great Tribulation. We saw in Revelation chapter 12, the woman uh, representing Israel, the child representing Jesus, who, who came from the woman, and the dragon representing Satan, who was trying to destroy the woman. We saw the events of Satan being thrown down to heaven and the persecution of the saints on earth. Then in Revelation chapter 13, from last week, we saw these two great persons, the Antichrist and the false prophet, the beast arising from the sea and the beast arising from the land. And we discussed somewhat last week of Revelation chapter 13 and the, the, the career of the Antichrist and the career of the false prophet. And I have to say, last week it was pretty dark. It was a dark chapter from the pages of the Scriptures. But, praise the Lord, chapter 14, the light begins to shine here. Look at it here. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps, and they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now we've seen this group of 144,000 before in the book of Revelation. They appeared for us in Revelation chapter 7. And in Revelation chapter 7, we saw that they were 144,000 specially chosen people from uh, the, the Jewish race, because they all were given a tribal identification, 12,000 from each one of 12 tribes, and they were specially sealed and specially empowered for service towards God during the Great Tribulation. That's what we saw in Revelation chapter 7, telling us about the 144,000 at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Then in succeeding chapters, especially chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Revelation, we saw how tremendous persecution would come against the people of God during the Great Tribulation. Those who were left behind on the earth and came to faith in Christ after the rapture of the church, they would face tremendous persecution. And we might be scratching our heads and say, well, what about the 144,000? How can they make it? With the Antichrist, with this huge world-dominating empire, so much so where he could make everybody on the earth take a mark either on their forehead or on their hand. And without that mark, they could neither buy nor sell. And if they wouldn't take the mark and worship the beast, then they would be killed. What would happen to these people who would resist that? These faithful 144,000? Well, we see from Revelation chapter 14 in the first three verses that they turn out just fine, don't they? Here they are at the end of the period of the Great Tribulation, standing triumphant with the Lord. Now, there's a great debate here in verses 1 through 3 as to whether or not they are in heaven or whether or not they are on earth. I would say the answer to that question is yes. I think there's indications that they're on earth. If you see in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 14, it says, Then I look, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. That seems to indicate that they are on Mount Zion, on planet earth, with Jesus Christ, and he's going to touch down, so to speak, on Mount Zion there in Israel. Uh, do you know where Mount Zion is? Mount Zion is a reference to the hills that make up Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is a city built on several hills. And those mountains, or that, that chain of hills there, is called Mount Zion. So it's talking about Jerusalem. Now, uh, that seems to me to be speaking of earth there. But then obviously, in verses 2 and 3, you have a heavenly choir, a heavenly chorus. I would say, in best way of speaking, this is at the very end of the Great Tribulation, and they're in that state that will be at the very end of it all, with access to both heaven and earth. So I think this chapter is going to answer two very important questions raised for us from Revelation chapter 13. The, the beast of Revelation 13 was terrifying and awesome, and he made war against the saints, and it said he would overcome them. So it's fair to ask, is this beast going to be victorious over all of God's people? And the answer to that question is no. Right here, you got an example. 144,000 standing with the Lamb of God upon Mount Zion. And might I say, there is no reference to their death. There's no reference to their martyrdom. It's not like they just went to heaven and were victorious there. They were sealed, according to Revelation chapter 7. And so they made it through the Great Tribulation. The, the Antichrist tried, but he couldn't touch them. Again, Revelation 7, you see them at the beginning. Revelation chapter 14, you see them at the end. And so they're standing on Mount Zion. And don't you love the identification there? Verse 1 of chapter 14, his father's name written on their foreheads. First of all, it reminds me that when the beast and his followers have a mark on their hand and forehead, it's really just a pale imitation of what the Lord did with 144,000. We always like to remind ourselves that Satan is not original in the slightest. He didn't make up this business of an identifying mark on the forehead. That was God's thing, and Satan twisted it. You see how Satan likes to do that so often? He'll take something, he'll twist it, and then he'll pervert it, adding, oh, we'll also allow it to be on the wrist, the forehead or the wrist, and that's just the character of Satan. And so you see here, what is the identifying mark, though? It's his father's name written on their foreheads. Isn't this beautiful to think that that's going to be the only identification that we have in heaven, is our father's name? Let me read you sort of an extended quote from Charles Spurgeon. I, I, I like this. It says, And who were these people having his father's name written in their foreheads? Not B's for Baptists, not W's for Wesleyans, not E's for established church, and might I add not CC's for Calvary chapels, no. Spurgeon goes on, They had their father's name and nobody else's. What a deal of fuss is made here on earth about our distinctions. We think such a deal about belonging to this denomination and the other. Why, if you were to go to heaven's gates and ask if they had any Baptists there, the angel would look only look at you and not answer you. If you were to ask if they had any Wesleyans or members of the established church, he would say nothing of the sort. Same thing with Calvary Chapel people, right? But if you were to ask him whether they had any Christians there, yes, he would say, an abundance of them. And they're all one now, all called by one name. The old brand has been obliterated. And they have not the name of this man or the other. They have the name of God, even their father, stamped upon their brow. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful, beautiful unity it'll be on that day. Now, if you notice here, not only does they see, John see this identification of them, but in verse 2, he hears a voice. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. I believe from Revelation chapter 1, verse 15, and Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, that this is the voice of God himself. 
Because on both of those occasions, the voice of God is described as being like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. You know what the idea is where it says, like the voice of many waters? You might think, well, look, there's a big lake, and it's many waters, and how much noise does a lake make? No, that's not the idea. The idea of a voice of many waters is like a huge waterfall and the sound that comes from that. Think of the noise that comes from Niagara Falls. Not only is it, is it loud, but it's awesome. It, it's, it's deep, it's resonant, and that's the voice of God. It sounds like a voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. God is speaking here probably to proclaim his approval of these 144,000 faithful servants. And maybe this is where they hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant. But that's not the only sound he hears. He hears the voice of God in verse 2. But then it says there in verse 2, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Now we remember that Revelation chapter 5 told us that the elders around the throne of God in heaven have harps. And maybe this is where their music is heard. And here we hear the voice of harps joining in with the worship of heaven. It's been thought at various times throughout the centuries of the church that to have musical or instrumental music in the church was impure and unholy. There have been some strict sort of people throughout the history of the church that thought that the most beautiful and the most holy sound that could be lifted up in worship to God is the human voice. And all I could say is they've never heard me sing. But I don't agree with that. I don't agree with the idea that musical worship is somehow excluded from God. No, we see right here that in heaven they worship with harps. And if they worship with musical instruments in heaven, I don't see why we can't use them right here on earth. So there they are, worshiping with those harps. And do you see what it says in verse 3? And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. You know, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, the 144,000 have their feet firmly planted on an earthly Mount Zion. Yet their praise takes them right to the presence of God, right before the throne. In our praise and worship, we really can transport ourselves and be heard in heavenly praises. I don't know if praise and worship so much brings us up to heaven as maybe it brings heaven down to us. But whatever it is, when we truly worship God, when we truly worship Him, not just with song, not just with music, but with our hearts and with our voices, in passionate, giving ourselves of worship to God, it really is like heaven has come down to earth. And sometimes I wonder, I wonder on behalf sometimes of our young people, and I wonder on behalf of, of dear precious saints within our own congregation, I wonder if they have ever experienced that. If they have ever genuinely experienced what seems like heaven coming down to earth in worship. And if they haven't, I, I not so much feel sorry for them as I have a passion to say, you, you need to enter in. You need to ask the Lord to set you free from whatever holds you back and learn what it's like to lose yourself in worship. Now, for some people, that seems intolerable. Lose myself in worship. Why, we must keep a proper propriety about things and, and not get too carried away. Well, and it's true. We must keep a proper propriety about things and not get too carried away, shouldn't we? 
To lose yourself in worship does not mean to run off into all sorts of emotional excess and to become a distraction to other people who are trying to focus upon the Lord. No, that's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about more of an inward work. More of an inward work of simply abandoning yourself to God and loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. You can do that in worship. Charles Spurgeon said, To be wrapped in praise to God is the highest state of the soul. To receive the mercy for which we praise God for is something. But to be wholly clothed with praise to God for the mercy received is far more. Why, praise is heaven, and heaven is praise. To pray is heaven below, but to praise is the essence of heaven above. When you bow in adoration, you are at your very highest. He also said something else in commenting on this text, and I think it's worthy of notice. When speaking about the new song that they sang before the throne, he said, heaven is not the place to learn that song. It must be learned on earth. You must learn here the notes of free grace and dying love. And when you have mastered their melody, then you will be able to offer to the Lord the tribute of a grateful heart, even in heaven, and blend it with harmonies eternal. Friends, don't wait till you get to heaven to sing that new song. And here in verse 4, we have more of a description of these 144,000. We read, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. First of all, we note the purity of these 144,000. And it says that they are virgins. Now many people take the virginity of these 144,000 as simply a symbol of their general purity. In other words, uh, to the minds of many, it doesn't mean that they're unmarried or have never known a a, a man or a woman. It just means that that, that they've simply uh, are, are very pure people. But I think it may very well be speaking of a literal virginity, especially in light of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 that in light of distressing times, it would be better for some Christians to remain unmarried. And if you want to talk about distressing times, the Great Tribulation will be it. If there was ever a time to say, Lord, for your sake and for your glory, and so that I may be able to endure this great time of tribulation, I'm not going to get married. Because, you know, it's one thing if persecution comes from the Antichrist and you're threatened with a knife at your throat saying either renounce Christ or die now. That's one thing. You have to be brave enough to stand strong for Jesus in that moment. But how will you handle it when they stick a knife to the throat of your wife and they say renounce Christ or we will kill her? You see why Paul said, in light of distressing times of persecution, it's better to consider maybe I shouldn't get married. So I think there's very good reason to believe that these 144,000 who come to Christ after the rapture of the church, during the Great Tribulation, that it's very likely that they will be literal virgins. Of course, they will also have the general purity that this virginity speaks of. Now, I want you to also know that that isn't the only mark of them. In verses 4 and 5, it also says, and this is beautiful in verse 4, It says, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You see, they're believers in Jesus. 
They're of Jewish heritage. Revelation chapter 7 told us that. Yet they're clearly believers in Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't stand with the Lamb and follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Especially if they had not believed in Jesus and taken His righteousness to be their righteousness. Then it says, then they could not, as it says in verse 5, be without fault before the throne of God. And might we remind ourselves of this? These tribulation believers, these tribulation saints are believers in Jesus Christ. It reminds us that the vast multitude saved during the Great Tribulation, which includes this 144,000, but is not limited to it, this vast multitude saved during the Great Tribulation will be saved in exactly the same manner as anyone today, by grace, through personal faith in Jesus Christ unto salvation. Let us never get confused in this, friends. Well, God may focus his work upon one group at one time in the sense of focusing on the people of Israel and on another group at another time as he focuses upon the church in general and why he may turn another focus in another time after the rapture of the church. Friends, whether it was in the Old Testament or in the New Testament or during the Great Tribulation, every person who has ever been saved is saved the same way by grace through personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Even though the rapture of the church ends God's dealings with the church as such on the earth, it certainly does not change the way people come to salvation or become a part of the larger family of God. Friends, it's very important for us to realize. In the Old Testament, people were not saved by works or by sacrifice. They were saved by trust in the coming work of the Messiah. We're saved by our trust in the past work of the Messiah. But nobody, nobody has ever been saved by works. Nobody. You say, well, what about Jesus? Wasn't he saved by works? No, because he was never lost. He didn't have to be saved by works, thank you very much. And so uh, there's just not an issue there. But nobody has ever been saved by works. And if you notice here, it also gives us another hint about the ministry of the 144,000, verse 4. Or at the end of verse 4, it says, These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. That is, they're the firstfruits. They're the beginning of a much greater harvest. This is one of the passages that leads us to believe that the 144,000 are tremendous evangelists during the Great Tribulation. We know again from Revelation chapter 7 that during the Great Tribulation, an innumerable multitude will come to Christ during that period of great woe upon the earth. There will be many, many people saved during the Great Tribulation after the church has been raptured. Friends, they'll probably be led to the Lord by people such as the 144,000 and those who have been touched by the lives of the 144,000. These are the first fruits. The more is to come. Check it out here now, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Very interesting here. Here in Revelation chapter 14, we have the announcement of an angel flying in the midst of heaven. And this angel flying throughout the earth is preaching the everlasting gospel to those who dwell on the earth. I take this quite literally. 
I believe that during the Great Tribulation, there will be a literal angel flying in the literal heavens. By the way, that term in the ancient way of thinking can apply just as much to the sky as it can to the place where God lives or in the great a starry sky. I believe it's talking about an angel flying in the sky, doing the most amazing sky riding you've ever heard of. He'll be preaching the everlasting gospel. Now, this is truly, truly remarkable. It's remarkable for several reasons. First of all, we remember that God has not entrusted the duty of spreading the gospel to angels. Do you understand that? I mean, if I were God, I would have done it that way. He's been so much more efficient, so much more obedient, so much more skilled, so much more impressive than you and I. I mean, there you or I would fumbling to share a tract or the four spiritual laws with somebody. How would you like if an angel just came down in flaming fire and, you know, burning eyes and everything's on fire about him and he, he casts out fire right in front of some poor sinner and he says, repent now. Yeah, that'd probably work. He'd probably get a lot of decisions for Christ right there, you know? Have that happen at one of those harvest crusades and you wouldn't see 10,000 people on the infield. You'd see the whole stadium down in the infield. But God hasn't chosen to do it that way. God has chosen to entrust the responsibility to spread the gospel to you and I. So when we see this in Revelation chapter 14, we understand this is something genuinely unique. I think what it is, it's God's last chance provision to get the gospel out to the world right before Jesus returns in glory. You shouldn't trust in this. I can imagine some people someplace saying, well, you know, listen, the Bible says that the gospel is going to go out to to everybody who dwells on the earth and and all people and every nation, tribe, tongue, and people are going to hear it. So why should we be so concerned with missionary endeavor, right? I mean, an angel's going to do it in the Great Tribulation, so what's the big deal about getting busy for it now? You wicked person. Don't you realize that Jesus told you He commanded you to go unto every nation and preach the gospel. He commanded us to do that. And that's why we do it. We do it because we're commanded to. God forbid if we should feel like we could slough off this job to some angel. No, I believe this angel is going to do it. And I believe this angel is going to complete a remarkable ministry. and, And probably some will hear or will be hardened in their hearts at the message of the angel. But the bottom line is it doesn't relieve us one bit of our responsibility to get the word of God out to every nation. Now, you should know that some today like to identify their own ministry or their own technology with this angel flying in the midst of heaven. There's a prominent television ministry that named the satellite that they used to broadcast, they named it Angel One. Because there it is, the angel flying through the midst of the heavens, right? It's a satellite broadcasting the gospel, and they say, well, isn't this a marvelous fulfillment of this? I thought that was goofy enough. But you know what I thought was very interesting? One of the commentators I read, and I like to read old commentators. I'm reading a guy named Adam Clark. He's writing from the late 1700s, around the time of George Washington, when, is when he wrote his commentary. And this is what he writes in it. He says, but the vision seems truly descriptive of a recent institution entitled the British and Foreign Bible Society whose object is to print and circulate the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments throughout all the habitable world and in all the languages spoken on the face of the earth. So in his own day, he said, well, that's the angel right there, a Bible printing and tract society, and they're getting the job done of this angel. 
Well, friends, I don't believe that we're that angel or any technology is that angel. I believe it's going to be an angel that actually ministers in the Great Tribulation. And God is just saying that he's going to give this remarkable chance, this extraordinary chance to the world. You see the message that the angel preaches. Look at it here, verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. I think it's amazing. Amazing that what this angel preaches is a message essentially of warning and repentance. You think it's bad now, he says, because judgment is going to be all over the world. Don't you think it's interesting that he mentions the sea and the springs of water? Because those are specifically targeted areas of God's judgment during the Great Tribulation. I can see the angel preaching this message to a world where one-third of the seas have become utterly polluted. And one-third of the fresh waters of the world have become utterly polluted because of the judgment of God. And this is the message he preached. It's going to get quite a hearing, I think. And what the angel tells the world to do is to give glory to God and worship Him willingly in this life. Or, they can be compelled to give glory to God later. The choice is really up to us, isn't it? It is certain that one day all will give glory to God. In the book of Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote, and he said, Therefore God also has highly exalted Jesus... And given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody will give glory to God, every creature. The question is, will they do it under compulsion in hell, or will they do it willingly on this earth? One commentator says, here's the bitter irony of their lot. Though they damn themselves eternally by their refusal to face the truth, one day they will be forced to face it. Sooner or later, the glory that they refuse to give the Creator willingly will be torn from them by the spectacle of His wrath. See, John says, here is this message. It goes out to the world. And it's a harsh message because judgment is coming upon the world. In verse 8, we have another angel announcing another aspect of judgment. And another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she's made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. I'm not going to talk much about Babylon tonight because we're going to talk a lot about it when we get to Revelation chapter 17. For now, I think it's enough to see Babylon as representing mankind in organized rebellion against God. This is what Babylon typifies all throughout the scriptures. Sometimes it refers to a literal city, sometimes a religious system, sometimes a political system, but it all stems from the evil character of ancient Babylon. And Babylon was evil not only for what it was in itself, but for how it corrupts the world. Look at it there in verse 8. And she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. But we'll talk a lot more about that when we get to Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Let's take a look at a third angel. The first angel was in verses 6 and 7, right? The second angel was in verse 8. Now in verses 9, 10, and 11, we have the third angel. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, 
Then he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Friends, this reminds us of something that we need to keep in mind when we consider the Great Tribulation. It's not just receiving a mark that damns a person. It's not just like you're getting a credit card or a new driver's license. No, if you look carefully here, it says in verse 9, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand. You see the idea here? Receiving the mark of the beast is connected to worshiping the beast. No one will casually or accidentally take the mark. It's not like you go to the bank one day, oh, well, receive this mark, boom, no. It will be tied to some kind of act of commitment, some kind of pledge of allegiance, some kind of submission in your heart to the beast and to his system. Receiving the mark may seem innocent enough to those who dwell on the earth. In their eyes, it may not seem like much more than a pledge of allegiance or devotion to the Antichrist and his government. We're reminded again that it was that way during the first century. When burning a pinch of incense to an image of Caesar and saying Caesar is Lord, that was regarded as an innocent act of civic duty to ancient pagans. But Christians rightly understood, no, this is idolatry and we won't do it. So worshiping the beast and receiving the mark are connected. What happens if a person does that? Did you notice it in verse 10? He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Those who worship the Antichrist are forced to drink the wine of the wrath of God. And this cup of God's wrath is like an undiluted wine, and it's even mixed with spices to make it still stronger. That's the idea behind the phrase, full strength. And I want you to get the picture clearly in your mind when it speaks here, verse 10, of drinking of the wine of the wrath of God and the cup of his indignation. It's drawing on an Old Testament image that we saw several times in the book of Isaiah. This image of God holding forth a cup to his enemies. And the cup is filled with judgment. Picture in your mind, if you will, one of those old horror movies where the wicked witch holds forth this cup and it's bubbling and boiling over. And she's going to make her targeted one drink that cup. Well, friends, this cup is not in the hands of a wicked witch. It's in the hands of a righteous God. And he gives the cup of his judgment, the cup of his indignation to those who are ready and ripe for judgment because they've rejected him repeatedly and thoroughly. And he says, now you must drink this cup of my wrath, of my indignation. Now, why I paint that image so vividly for you is I want you to understand what Jesus meant in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup Pass from me. You see, that was the cup Jesus didn't want to drink. 
the cup of the wrath and the indignation of God. That is the cup that he drank on our behalf. Friends, it's as if there's a cup in heaven that God had appointed for you. You deserved it. Your sin, my sin, there's a cup with my name on it up there in heaven. And it's the special judgment, the special wrath that I deserve for my sins. God took that cup and he gave it to Jesus. And Jesus said, I will drink it for David because I love him. Friends, that's what he did for you. That's what he did for all of his redeemed, for every one of us who trust in him. And that's the cup that Jesus wanted to avoid if there was any way possible. Jesus did not embrace or welcome the physical suffering of the cross. No, he dreaded that. But far worse than that, he dreaded receiving the wrath and indignation of God within himself, becoming a target of the righteous wrath of God that you and I deserved. But here, we find for those people who did not want Jesus to take their cup of wrath, now God serves it to them. It says here, it's got your name on it. You didn't want Jesus to drink it for you. You would do it your way. Well, here is your way. Here's your cup of wrath. And it describes it as the wine of the wrath of God, the cup of his indignation. If you notice there in verse 10, it says, And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Friends, tonight, if I truthfully teach the word of God, then I should be accused of being a fire and brimstone preacher. Because here it is. It's fire and it's brimstone. This passage teaches us several important truths about hell and the eternal destiny of the damned. But let's just remind ourselves, if you want to look down at the page again, it's in the book. I'm not making this up. This isn't a horror story that I'm trying to tell to frighten little children. This isn't something that I'm adding on to the text of the Bible because I don't think it speaks strongly enough. No. The Bible speaks plenty strong all on its own. The Bible talks about fire and brimstone. That's the first thing we see. It says, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. This shows that the suffering of hell is real torment and that it is painful and repulsive. You know how painful it is to get burned? Don't you get uh, just this sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach when you see on the news story those people who endure horrific burns all over their body? You know the pain that they go through. The suffering of hell is real torment. It's painful. It's repulsive. Brimstone, that's like a sulfur smell. It makes you sick after a while, doesn't it? Suffering of hell won't just hurt. It'll be sickening. The thing we find out about the punishment of hell is at the end of verse 10, where it says, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You know what this shows us? This perhaps is the most frightening truth about hell. Not that there's fire and brimstone there. No, the most frightening truth of hell is that God is not absent from hell. He's there. He's there in all of his holiness and righteous judgment. Those who are in hell will wish God were absent, but he will not be. 
Some people say, and I've heard it taught, I may have even taught this at some time, that hell will be devoid of the presence of God. No, it won't. The people who are in hell will wish it was devoid of his presence. No, it will not be devoid of the presence of God, but it will be devoid of his love. The presence of Jesus will be there, but only the presence of his holy justice and wrath against sin. Friends, the other, the other aspect of this is in verse 11, where it says, The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Those who go to hell during the Great Tribulation, that means those who worship the Antichrist and receive his mark. But those who go to hell will endure this wrath and indignation for eternity in hell. Here, the fact of eternal torment is plainly stated. Do you know what it means in the Greek, forever and ever? It means forever and ever. Literally, if you want to translate the words, it means literally into the ages of ages. It's the strongest expression of eternity of which the ancient Greek language is capable. John did not have the vocabulary to put it any more strong or certain than this. Well, I have to say, this troubles many people. And in some way, if I were to detach myself from, from biblical moorings and sort of drift out into the sea of human thinking, I would say, now this isn't fair. Really now, God, why punish them for eternity? Why not punish them for a thousand years or 50,000 years and then let their beings be extinguished? You should know that that's a doctrine known as annihilationism. Some people, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, teach that the damned are immediately annihilated. In other words, if you're wicked and you die, you don't go to hell, you just cease to exist. Which to me does not sound like a bad deal at all. I mean, if that's how it is, then how are the wicked punished? Second, though, there's another aspect of annihilationism, which I have to say, surprisingly, some Bible teachers that I have respected, some commentators that I have known and respected, they have embraced this. Maybe nobody that most of you would know, just some commentators that I've read. They've embraced this modified annihilationism which says that God will allow these people to suffer the torments of hell for 1,000 or 50,000 years and then snuff out their existence. Friends, I, part of me, if I wanted to drift away from biblical moorings and set out on the ocean of human reason, then I'd say, why not? But that's not what the Bible says. It says forever and ever. Now, why? Let me express to you a principle. And the principle is simply this. In the Bible, we find the principle that sin must be atoned for. Sin must be accounted for. Wrongs must be righted. God's eternal justice demands it. That sin must be paid for. It must be atoned. Nobody's going to get away with anything. Nobody. Sin must be paid for. Now, if a person chooses to pay for their own sin then they must pay for it completely. But here's the difficulty. 
An imperfect being cannot make a perfect payment. And so what God basically says to every person in hell is he says, you will stay in hell as long uh, or up until the point at which you satisfy my perfect justice. So go ahead. I'll punish you and, and make you atone for your own sin until my perfect justice is satisfied by you. But an imperfect being can never, never offer a perfect sacrifice. This is why the sacrifices of the Old Testament had to be repeated constantly, all the time. Every day, every morning, and every evening in Israel, an animal was sacrificed to atone for the sin of the nation. Every day. It never stopped. You might say, well, why don't you sacrifice a thousand animals on one day, and then you don't have to do it the next day? No, it doesn't work that way. Every day. Because an imperfect sacrifice has to be perpetually repeated. And that's why it is in hell. People never pay off the debt. They never perfectly atone for their sin. If they could, then they'd be released from hell. And so that's why hell is eternal. Because sin can never be satisfied. The debt of sin can never be satisfied. You see, to make a perfect payment for sin, you need a perfect being. Only one person has ever made a perfect payment of sin, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. So ultimately, there's two places in the universe where sin is paid for. It can be paid for for eternity, or all through eternity, in hell, or it can be paid once for all on the cross at Calvary by the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now you see why it's so important for people to trust in Jesus for their salvation. John Trapp said, Would to God men would everywhere think and talk more of hell, and that of that eternity of extremity that they shall never else be able to avoid or abide. Surely one good means to escape hell is to take a turn or two in hell by our daily meditations. I think we probably, especially in our culture, need to think about hell a little more. You know, nobody taught on hell more in the Bible than Jesus. Jesus himself. And the second person who taught most about hell? John, the disciple of love. Because they knew that the most important thing about hell is not going there. One other thing I think is very interesting about this. If you notice in verses 9 and 10, where it says, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark... We don't have this exact verb tense in our own language. But the ancient Greek language in which John wrote was very uh, wonderful in that you could use verb tenses to describe an ongoing action. And that's what he basically says. He says in verse 9, If anyone continues worshiping the beast, and if anyone continually receives the mark, not just that you receive it, but you approve it, you you do it, you're, you're in the mark so to speak, not that you get it stamped on time and time again. You understand the point. You see, the point of it is here, is the same present tense is used to describe the torment. Their worship of the beast was not interrupted by repentance. So their torment will not be interrupted when repentance is too late. All right, verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints 
Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. We can easily contrast the rest that the saints have with the continual torment of the wicked, right? The wicked have this continual torment, but God's saints, they have rest. And the rest comes through patient endurance and faithfulness to God and to the Word. You see, this is the great news that we have to proclaim. It's as bad as hell is. That's how glorious heaven is. And they have rest and they have peace. I can only imagine in my mind some, some dear saint during the Great Tribulation. The church has been raptured. They've been taken away, but they go into the time of the Great Tribulation. And because they've been told by maybe a faithful witness like you or I, they come to faith in Christ and need great courage during the Great Tribulation. And as they are reading the book of Revelation, they, they read verse 13. And it says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Me, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. How many martyrs during the Great Tribulation do you think that that verse will comfort them in their dying hours? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then they'll hear the word from the Spirit. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Clearly, God wants to encourage His people to be steadfast in times of trial and focused on the blessed rest and reward that awaits them eternity. I think we can say, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. The other great thing is that their works follow them. Did you notice that? The patient endurance and work of these saints is remembered in heaven. Our work for the Lord goes on before us or with us into heaven. It gives dignity and significance to all the work we do down here below. Friends, I don't know, maybe you're a a street sweeper or a toilet cleaner. You sweep those streets, you clean those toilets unto Jesus Christ and transform it from just a menial job to something you do for His glory and you take the value of that work done unto Him with you into heaven. Do you believe that? God allows you to build up heavenly reward for what you do on earth right now if you'll do it unto Christ and with an eye towards eternity. That's glorious. That means that nothing you do tomorrow or or before you go to bed tonight needs to be wasted. Nothing wasted. Everything can be sanctified and set apart to the Lord. Verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having in his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Obviously, this is Jesus here, though you should know not every commentator agrees. I can't believe what people disagree with. One like the Son of Man sitting on a cloud, having in his head a golden crown. That's Jesus to me. Actually, what myths them is in verse 15, it talks about an angel coming out of the temple and telling the Son of Man to do something. They don't like that. They don't think Jesus should listen to any angels and say what to do. I think they need to just chill out a little bit and realize the humility of Jesus. And that entirely fits with who he is. By the way, when you see that angel in verse 15 coming out of the temple, that means the temple in heaven. What that angel is coming is, so to speak, in the images, he's coming with a message from the Father. He's just come from the throne room saying to the Son of Man, now's the time, do it. And Jesus Christ will be actively involved in in reaping the harvest of the earth. Did you notice what it said there in verse 15 where it says, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. 
The ancient Greek word used there, ripe, has a negative sense. It actually means to become dry or withered. The idea is that something is overripe. And this means that God will judge the earth only when it's overripe for judgment. He doesn't rush into judgment. God will wait. But it will come. Here you have another very vivid image of it in verse 17 through the end of the chapter where it says, Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vines of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. That's amazing. Another angel. Another angel comes out from the altar here what this angel does is this angel grabs and you see this great sickle coming down and harvesting the earth, harvesting the wicked actually and thrusting them into a great wine press, the great wine press of the wrath of God. Have you heard that imagery before? How about from the battle hymn of the Republic? Mine eyes have seen the glory, the coming of the Lord, he is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. He's loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. You see the idea here? It's a harvest. And he brings forth those grapes. And if you notice here, it says here in verse, where was it? In verse uh, 18, it says, For her grapes are fully ripe. That's a different idea than the word used for ripeness in verse 15. The verse 15 word for ripe means like dry and withered. That's overripe. That's past ripe. This word for fully ripe means a grape that's so ripe that it's bursting with juice. And then the image is that those grapes bursting with juice are cast into a wine press. And he treads on the winepress of the wrath of God. Friends, how much resistance does a grape offer to somebody when somebody steps on it? Especially a fully ripe, loaded with juice grape. It just goes pop when somebody steps on it. That's the image of judgment. That's how completely, thoroughly, God will crush his enemies in judgment. We also know here, it says in verse 20, that blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now some people have taken this image and figured that, well, you know, up to the horse's bridle, that's about, you know, four or five feet. So you're going to have a river of blood flowing for four or five feet deep for 1,600 furlongs, which is about 200 miles. I don't think so. I think the image here is not blood that deep as if it were a river. It's being splattered. I mean, the image here is of splattering blood, like a grape splatters when you step on it. And it's splashing and it's splattering all up that high on the horse's bridles. 
Now, in ancient times, a battle area extending 1,600 furlongs, a battle area extending 200 miles, was incomprehensible in ancient times, not in modern warfare. Now, a battle area is, is hundreds of miles with ships and, and distant artillery and cruise missiles and all this. This describes probably the Battle of Armageddon in a huge radius being fought in the Promised Land. And this vivid, powerful description shows how complete the judgment of God is. Friends, don't miss the image. Judgment will come surely and as completely as a person stepping on a grape. Revelation chapter 14 is the perfect answer to Revelation chapter 13. When we read Revelation chapter 13, it looked pretty dark. You got the beast, you got the, the false prophet, you got the Antichrist. Oh, it's just terrible, terrible. It seemed almost like Satan and the Antichrist might win. But not when you read chapter 14. Chapter 14 shows who's really triumphant, who's really powerful, and who's really in control. The Lord God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is in control. Matter of fact, his people are in control too because they reign through him. Satan isn't in control, is not in control. His Messiah, the Antichrist, is not in control. His false prophet, his followers, they're not in control. No, Jesus Christ wins the victory. So let that image flash in your mind. How much resistance does the great give to the heel that presses down upon it? Not much. That's how completely God will triumph over his enemies on the day of judgment. All the more reason we need to be encouraged to get our hearts and lives right with Jesus Christ today. You know, friends, this is real. This is fairy tale time. This is real. And you don't want to be the grape. You want to be one of the Lord's people, with the Lord, instead of resisting him. Father, we pray that you do that work in our hearts, that you make us that kind of people, committed followers of you, that know, Lord Jesus, the greatness of your timing, the greatness of your power, and that we willingly bow down before the Lord of creation, giving him our hearts, our lives, Lord, even our sacred honor, it belongs to you. So we love you, Lord, and praise you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.